All right, we are here, and welcome to Behind the DM Screen. It is January of 2018. I even got the year right on the first podcast recording nice. of 2018. Yeah! Very nice, very nice. <laughs> uh, and you will note from that voice there that we have three DMs helping each other out and talking about our games, but one of our DMs is a little bit different. Uh, Sam was not feeling very well uh, as of a few hours ago and had to bow out, uh, but luckily we have the, the esteemed Allison Rossi with us. Uh, which we are very That's fortunate me. to have. So uh, as many opportunities as I can have to get Allison Rossi on a podcast, I'm going to take it, and here she is. So uh, we have 15 minutes on the clock for each of us to talk about our games and to ask questions about what we should do and coming up or how we should have handled things differently or whatever. Uh, I'm putting Mike on the spot first because he was last last time. So, Mike, 15 minutes on the clock. Go. Man, that means I can, like, take the whole hour. <laughs> um, so I thought this time, uh, I don't think I got into it much last time, and I'm my groups, I'm actually sort of between games with my two different groups. Um, I haven't yet started Tomb of Annihilation, and I'm just doing some other, some other stuff with my other group. And I thought instead I would take my time to sort of do a retrospective of the two... 14-month-long Storm King's Thunder campaigns that I just finished. That's a really about long campaign. Yeah, it's a really long campaign. Yeah, that's, that's why really I thought long. I thought it would be worthwhile. Yeah, both groups were like level 16, 16 or 17 when they were done. Um, it went completely off course, as 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 it does. And uh, anyway, so I thought it'd be fun for people who are considering running Storm King's Thunder or people who have run it. Uh, Allison, have you run Storm King's Thunder? Uh, I have not, but I was a player in a Storm King Thunder okay. campaign. Great, great. So it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, to to see what differences they are. Um, so overall, I I was I was talking with my wife Michelle uh, uh, this evening. We had a nice chance to get away from the ice and get some coffee mm-hmm. and talked about. And one of the questions she had was like, "What percentage of the adventure did I actually run, and what percentage was a bunch of nonsense that I came up with?" <laughs> and and I think if I said that I ran fifty percent of the adventure, that would be pretty optimistic. Um, I think I think I ended up going off the rails pretty significantly, obviously just by the level range alone um, from from what was published there. Uh, I really loved chapter one. I loved the whole introduction to Nightstone. I loved going and rescuing the villagers from the cave. Mm-hmm. I loved coming back and having to deal with Zinterim guys that are sort of like trying to buy out the castle that's there. I had a lot of fun with that up to about level four or so. Um, there's the little side adventures after there, which didn't really grab me as much. Um, and then I felt for both groups that chapter two was kind of weak, uh, because there offers those, those, that's where it offers the three options. And one of the options is just terrible, which is, Hey, do you want to go 1500 miles North to Bryn Shander to deliver a note? And you're like, no, not really. You know, that seems like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit far. It's a bit far. Yeah. Uh, and then the other two are uh, Tribor and Golden Fields. And one group I ran Tribor, and the other group I ran Golden Fields. Golden Fields was fine. That was the, the siege of Golden Fields, kind of having a bunch of orcs and a bunch of ogres attacking Golden Fields was fun. Is that the, the one that I rec- recall there being like a treant in the middle of it or something? Yes, right. Yeah. There's this huge a treant that's throwing kids through the air, mm-hmm. it, which is awesome. Yeah, so, so I really liked Golden Fields, and um, the group had a really good time uh, routing the uh, attack that occurred against mm-hmm. Goldenfield. 
Um, Tribor, I ran differently just because I didn't want to have another city under siege. So it's like they just got done dealing with goblins invading one town. They go to another place and hey, look, here come you know orcs and orcs and giants. The so natural instead, upgrade from from the previous. Yeah, season. right. But it's like every city we go to is under attack, which I guess is kind of the theme of Storm Kings. But it's also supposed to be more relaxed, and it didn't seem relaxed. Mm-hmm. So instead, I said they went to uh, they went there and uh, found out that fire giants were digging around in ancient burial areas for the artifacts of the dragons and the giants from the Thousand Year War uh, back during the uh, oh, what was the name of the empire. No, I can't remember the name of the mm-hmm. Empire. This is a big, big, big battle between uh, giants and dragons that occurred, I think it was like 30,000 years ago. Yeah, like the, the, in the dawn of the Forgotten yeah. Realms. Yeah. Uh, I want to see the Astoria. I think, like, I think it's like the Astorian Age or something like that. Right. And um, so I kind of made that. What, you know, the, the book is pretty loose with the threads that tie it together. And I know that I had to certainly come up with a lot of threads on my own that mm-hmm. sort of wow, wove, the, wove the adventure together. And one of those big threads was that um, many of the giants, well, two of them in particular, Countess Sansuri and Duke Zalto, were seeking the artifacts of the dragons and giants from back in that time. That it was really powerful magical stuff, and it was, you know, they're they're going to dig it up out of the earth or go find it in dungeons deep. And the adventurers have to go and sort of chase after these things. And the nice thing is, um, it meant that. It, I didn't really care how many of them were found, right? Like, it's not like there's five, and you, you have, you know, this, the the common problem with like, oh, the bad guys trying to collect these five things is if the party gets one, they've they've stopped it, right? <laughs> like, and and yeah, you know, true. and and if you if you instead say, well, they only need one, well, now that means the party has to get all five. Mm-hmm. But what if the bad guy gets two and the good guys get three? Like, what what happens there? Mm-hmm. So. In, in, you know, if it's more open and it's like, well, it's bad if they get any and you want to stop them from getting as many as possible, that leaves you lots of wiggle room to, to you know, let things take the course that, like, Countess Sansuri got some, Duke Zalto got some, the Adventurers got some, and, uh, and, it, and there wasn't even known how many there were, right? So that became a major woven thread through about the first half of the campaign. Um, and then is about the midpoint where the party ran into Clouth, the ancient red dragon. Mm-hmm. And he, he became their number one quest NPC. And having Clouth as a quest NPC was awesome. Like, he's which, a great character. Which is not exactly how he was intended to work, right? No, he's sort of like, he's, he's one of the many pieces of that enormous chapter three. And it's, it's a good one. And I think many people have recommended that you... Um, and I recommend you introduce Klaus because as as NPCs go, an ancient red dragon is pretty great, you know. So uh, and the party worked with him, and he was kind of this stubborn, you know. He was always uh, polymorphed into a like a you know an a, a ugly looking gnome, and um, they, but then they always knew like yeah, but he's an ancient red dragon, so don't screw with him. And the so the, if the if the first half of the campaign was sort of seeking out these ancient artifacts the second half of the campaign was the battle between Clouth and Imrith and Imrith really was like she she is kind of the main villain of the adventure anyway uh, Imrith is this ancient blue dragon who lives in the nameless city off in Anoruk and um to me the second half of the campaign became uh you know the the recognition that Imrith is this master manipulator of the entire sword coast and she's the one that's actually been getting all of the giants to get collect all of these things she's been charming many of them she's been just manipulating them without any magical influence for others uh she's got all kinds of things going on she's even got a connection to slarkrathal this massive 
powerful kraken that lives out in the in the sea in the trackless sea and has has slarkrothal uh fired up and you know that she's she's just kind of controlling everything and her motivation is that she wasn't there to save tiamat when tiamat fell during the war of tiamat back in the horde of the dragon queen and rise of tiamat campaign and her anger at sort of herself for not being there and the rest of the sword coast for screwing all that up is I'm going to take the sword coast down and I'm going to just manipulate all of the villains in this place to do so. Uh, so that became sort of the, the main theme of the second half of, of the campaign for me. And, and again, that's not really reinforced heavily in the book. She is a villain in the campaign. Um, but I tried to connect her to everything. And, and, you know, I, I think the adventure kind of needs that because it's not really connected together much without that. Right. Hmm. Um, so, you know, again, I, I sort of went pretty far off the rails with almost all of the chapters. Um, and there was a lot of things that I added in that I thought worked particularly well. Um, and one of them was I, I let them solve the ordning at the end. Like mm -hmm. the, the ordning is broken. Um, the all father, the God of the, the giants kind of says like, look, all of my, all of my children are a bunch of doofuses anyway. So since you mortal people solved the major problem, i.e. killed Emerith and did everything else, you guys get to decide who the new leader of the giants are. Right. And that was, yeah. And that was a nice, that, you know, the party was happy. They, they had, they had a lot of relationships with them. Um, they had, they knew many of the giants, you know, the, 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 the new count of the cloud giants was a friend of theirs. Duke Zalto actually ended up becoming an ally of theirs. Um, and they had saved the, um, they saved King Hecaton, but Hecaton gave his crown over to his daughter. So now she's the head of the storm giants. And what they, they, they had a really cool discussion about like, well, who's going to be the, you know, who should we have it? And at one point it's like, maybe one of the party members should be the head of the ordning. Because they had a Goliath party member, and they're and she's like, no, <laughs> like I don't want to become a parent. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. That's a lot like, of responsibility. Yeah, right. I want to go on adventures. This is, that sounds boring. So um, they ended up giving it to um, uh, I think Senessa is her name. She's the head, the daughter of King Hecaton, um, and they um, uh, they gave they they made her the head of the Ordning. So the head of the Ordning is still a storm giant. It's just now a storm giant. Uh, a female storm giant, the daughter of King Hecaton, instead of King Hecaton himself. He just becomes her advisor. Um, and the, the the book doesn't have that. The book doesn't let you, actually let you solve the ordning. And I just and I feel like there's a there's two major threads in, that appear in the book. One is the Ring of Winter, which is the whole sort of frost giant MacGuffin, and one is um, and, and the second one is the ordning itself. And neither of them are solved in the adventure. Well, yeah, the and Ring just, of Winter is just a, a, right. a prelude to Tomb of Annihilation. But anytime you start to put hints of a thing like that in front of players, they're going to be like, oh, I want to go find that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, it turns out it's not really there or this other. Oh, no, that's not true. I'm going to keep digging, right? Like, <laughs> like they'll grab onto the Ring of Winter and they'll never let go. Well, but now you know where, where it is. So if they really want to hunt it down, they end up in Charles. <laughs> right. Didn't even know. So the idea that you could plant rumors of it, which is what I did. Right. I said that the Frost Giants were going after this thing, but Cloud is like, "That's a fool's errand. There is no such thing." Mm. Right. The Ring of Winter. That's a stupid fairy tale. There's no Ring of Winter out there. Don't even bother with the Frost Giants. They're a bunch of idiots anyway. The dwarves of the North will handle them. You don't have to worry about them. So I never actually ran any of the Frost Giant stuff because mm -hmm. because I was afraid they were going to hang on to that particular plot point and never let it go. Well, but and that's thought, not, that, that's actually a really smart way of handling it because now when you run the Tomb of Annihilation yeah. and you run oh into God. the Ring of Winter, they'll be yeah. like, oh, that totally makes sense now. And, right. and they'll right. get the cameo without having to have gone through the, the chasing the un uncatchable MacGuffin. 
Yeah, right. And that that to me was like the the crappy part is that there's even if they kind of recognize that it might not exist, the whole the whole idea that they're they're chasing after this ring and the ring doesn't actually exist just seemed like kind of a crappy you know plot driver. Um, now the funny thing with Duke Zalto is Duke Zalto is trying to rebuild this massive war machine, and uh, one of the things he needed was the primordial that is stored in Gauntelgrim, and both groups managed to stop the stopped to transfer the primordial over to duke zalto so he never actually got it so then when the party went after duke zalto he's his his plot was already foiled and he's like playing with his dogs you know he's got these two huge hellhounds and he's like throwing a big iron ball around they ended up beating him and killing him and they got surrounded by fire giants and his wife and the group like had this big negotiation with his wife and they ended up resurrecting him. And then he's like, yeah, you know, and they, they became allies. He, she said, like, if you, you know, the one who's been manipulating us and all this is Imrith. If you kill Imrith, you know, we'll, we'll not wage war against the small folk for 100 years. And they're like, good enough. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's a good deal. It works for us. Great. It works for us. So it was really cool that, like, the fire giants actually, you know, became not, not exactly like they were kind of like cold allies, you know, like, mm -hmm. a, you know, but, but I thought that was that was a fun way to go. Mm hmm. One other thing that I felt like they really dropped the ball on is in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, they talk about the purple rocks, and they describe it very much hmm. like H.P. Lovecraft's Shadows Over Innismouth. I know we talked about this on the show previously. Mm -hmm. And read Volo's Guide, and Volo's Guide has Sea Spawn and Deep Scions and Kraken Priests, and all of them are about the purple rocks and this crazy-ass Shadows Over Innismouth story that they've got. And then you have Storm King's Thunder, which talks about the Kraken, you know, Slakrathal, who's swimming around the purple, and you never actually go to the purple rocks. So I'm like, well, that sucks, right? Like, you know, we need to go to the purple rocks. So I actually read H.P. Lovecraft Shadow over, Shadows Over In His Mouth, and then built, like, a, you know, a, a, a sort of two or three session adventure there that, you know, kind of hooked into all that creepy fish people Lovecraft stuff. Because I felt like it was really missing from the adventure, and it was a lost opportunity given the amount of energy that it had from these other two books. Um, and I ran that for both groups, and that worked really well. So that's something else I'd recommend. Uh, a few other things I added is uh, uh, I didn't like the whole plot of the stone giants. It was really like, well, they just sort of want to destroy things that are made by people. And mm -hmm. I replaced that with a um, storyline, again, that I mentioned on the show, which is the Dode Kong. Uh, the death, the death king. He's a he's a uh, a stone giant lich, who ends up killing the head of the stone giants and then begins this undead stone giant rise. Um, and then the little hint I had there is that some of the power that he's figured out how to use he got from um, uh, a Sararak. Hmm. Right, party actually saw an image of a Sararak in Dodheim, which is the Dodkong's underground city. Uh, so that was a fun, like, really cool villain. You know, you definitely hate the stone giant. You can understand what they're doing. They're enslaving people and then sending them into this pyramid. And inside the pyramid, they're getting, like, ground up and their souls are getting harvested by the Dodekong. Mm -hmm. um, this is before the events in Tomb of Horrors right? or Tomb of Annihilation. Well, that's another um, good tie-in to Tomb of Annihilation yeah, right. when you start running that. That's right. good. Like, at, by this point, Tomb had been announced but not yet out. So I was like, oh, I know a Sararak, you know, and I know a Sararak's in it, so I can I can start to drop hints in there. And they ended up dropping more hints later. Uh, the party ended up going into the Astral Sea to... So so one of Imrith's plot lines was that she wants to die and become a, de or become a Dracolich. And she actually built a phylactery and hid it on a, on a 
like essentially an asteroid that's floating around in the astral sea that you cannot scry on and you cannot teleport to but she will reappear there as a when she when she dies and that's her fallback like if i fight the party and the party kills me i'll teleport you know i'll just be raised as a being even stronger and she just wants to turn into like a spirit creature and fly through the astral sea causing havoc too but the party found out oh oh my god i'll be quick um (laughs) you're you're always over it's fine but i'll still be quick so the party went after her phylactery and destroyed it before she had died and she didn't know what happened because she can't scry on it because it's in this scry proof place um but the thing that kind of helped her build this phylactery is the fact that she was also in touch with uh, a Sararak through some of his apprentices and the apprentices I, I decided to name the Brotherhood of the Tombs which is this like group of this fraternity of of liches that exist throughout the multiverse that all kind of work for a Sararak but you know like a Sararak he's sort of a loner and they're sort of loners too but they do have this loose connection and they actually found on their on their travels through the astral sea they found a planet that had been completely stripped of all of the life and all of the souls that were on it by a Sararak using some of his other, you know, some of his other powers. So the idea is that like the, 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 the big thing that's going on in tomb of annihilation, I'm not going to quite spoil it on the show, but I don't know. I don't care. That, I don't know if we care. Um, but the thing that's going on there is actually been powered by other worlds than, than Toral. Right. Mm-hmm. And they found one that had been finished. Right. So they fought and beat a lich there. Um, so they had all these adventures in the Astral Sea, too, which was kind of fun. Um, but that's and, all and far, far afield of what was in the Yeah, right. Yeah, you're making yeah, your own campaign now. Yeah, right. And that's what I said. Like, probably less than 50% of the book. Um, but to me, some of the most memorable parts of the campaign that I ran was came from that. And, and the idea that, like, they kept running into these liches, and they wouldn't necessarily be evil. They found another lich inside um, the, nameless, the Nameless City, which is Imrith's big city that she's taken over there's a tower there it's an old netherese city and um there's a lich there that has taught her a lot of magic and taught her a lot about flactors and he's sort of the apprentice to her but he's kind of pissed off at her because she hasn't really been doing the job that Aserak wanted her to do wanted him yeah he wanted her to do mm-hmm. so when the party shows up they now are in contact with multiple liches who are like if you beat her we're okay with that too and by the way hey you there, sorcerer, you look really strong. Maybe you'd like to join us one day, too, right? And he's like, yeah, that's not such a bad idea. So now it's like one of the party members might become one of Aserak's apprentices. Um, so it's all like that sort of, you know, letting the letting the campaign sort of go free. And it and again, it sort of left at level 16. So I didn't, all the kind of nonsense at the end of the adventure of like, hey, you get these huge giant-sized potions and 15 storm giants will come with you to fight a ancient blue dragon. I'm like, what are you like level nine? Why are you fighting an ancient blue dragon? And how 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 much does it steal the 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 the, the climax of the adventure if it's like, well, we didn't beat it with all of our stuff. We had to have a whole bunch of extra crap, and that let us beat an ancient blue dragon. Mm-hmm. So I liked it better that they went and fought her at level sixteen, and she's dropping meteor showers on them, and she's you know <laughs> lane shifting them, and she's oh, it was awful. And I had two groups that fought her, and one group, yeah, in one group they you know she took one of them. And led she she baited one of the characters to jump into a portal to hell. So that whole character, what? the whole character's fighting. So the character was like uh, her, her name is Sif, and she was the Goliath, and she was like the sister of Harshnag, like the the sort of you know non non blood related sister of Harshnag. And Imrith had captured Harshnag. Harshnag is this big frost giant, nice frost giant. 
she had captured him and encased him in this giant amber tomb. And then when they walk into her front door, she's got the tomb hanging over a portal to hell and just drops it down through, right, first thing. And the first thing that Sif does is jump right down the portal with her. And, and the whole That's rest of the group insane. is... Yeah, the group's like, holy cow. <laughs> what do we and, do now? <laughs> and, and, and the player, a couple, of, a couple of weeks later, was like, did I screw everything up by jumping that portal? I'm like, no, I had a whole separate battle map for you already prepared. Like, I was hoping you would jump through that portal. Like, I didn't know how it was going to work out. <laughs> but I had already split the battle map into two separate battle maps, one that's in hell and one that's in Imra's throne room. So, like, no, no, I came prepared. Don't you worry. I knew you guys well, would do I, this. Well, I, I don't know what she's going to do. I said, like, for all I know, there's going to be a telekinesis arm wrestling match over that thing. Like, I have, <laughs> you know, when you hit these high levels, I have no idea what's going to happen. Oh, um, but you, you put a portal to hell in the middle of the room. You have to be prepared for the eventuality that somebody might jump in it. You yeah, you know, you know someone's going to mean it'll happen. Yeah, like, it, you know, anything. And they, they also had access to a wish spell. And with that, oh, I just, yeah. So, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Literally That's, anything could happen. Anything could happen. So it was, a, it was a really great campaign. I look back very fondly on it, and my, my probably my number one recommendation is you know, steal what you want from it and then rebuild the rest yourself to build the kind of... So it's a good source of inspiration to just run your Honestly, own homebrew campaign. <laughs> almost, almost every... Yeah, right. I, I think probably more so than the others. That like um, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse and Out of the Abyss and, and certainly Curse of Strahd I ran much more of those adventures from the book mm -hmm. than I did this one. And this one, it was sort of like a DM's version of the Sword Coast Adventures Guide. Mm. And and I stole what I wanted, and I and then I made up the rest. And I was perfectly happy with it. And I think the group is perfectly happy with it. So I don't I don't blame it. And I certainly feel like I got my dollars out of it. Uh, but it's a much looser event. And I'm and I'm hoping Tomb of Annihilation is not that loose. You know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I feel relatively vindicated in my initial review then of Storm King's Thunder, where I discussed how the plot was so loose and it didn't really have any driving force behind it, and that so much of the book, by its nature, like necessarily doesn't get used. You talked about the split into three places on chapter two, but then later on, there's a split into each of the giant types, and you're only going to explore one of those avenues. Yeah. I mean, I, we I ended up using I think four of them. So right. So I, as, I got my money's worth. You're right. As written, you're only going to use like half of the book maybe. Right. Um, you know, if you followed it and you didn't even follow it, which um, I think is the way to do it. Uh, I just remember that was my – that was the one adventure that's been published. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, I feel like I can take a pass on that one. I don't feel the need to run yeah. this one. You know? I, I loved the idea of a – now that we had the Sword Coast Adventures Guide and now that I was used to the Sword Coast because I ran Tomb of Annihilation or um, um, Rise of Tiamat and Horde of the Dragon Queen, mm -hmm. um, I felt more comfortable running a campaign that was this really big, wide campaign. Right. And I like the idea that it was sort of like Rick Steves' guide to the Sword Coast, You know that, it, that you could kind of go wherever you wanted and explore. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. But yeah, to, I think it is – this might be overly harsh, but it feels like the weakest of the hardcover adventures. Like everything that's there is really good. There's just some fundamental like underpinnings that that right. of, of a story that aren't there. You know, just steal the maps. It's worth it. Oh right? sure, yeah. yeah. I remember the discussion that we did on the podcast a while ago when mm. I thought I was going to run it, and then that's when I found out I was going to move to Los Angeles, and uh, one of my players ended up running it, and he basically said the same thing, where he took a lot of the ideas of it, but then added tons of his own things to the point where, you know, I, I had to 
skimmed through most of it for the for the podcast, and I could tell that he had definitely gone in and changed a lot of things mm. and kind of filled in those plot holes that were there where it's like, this is a complete adventure, but not at the same time. Like, you have to kind of fill in a lot of blanks. And, and I agree that it's probably one of the, the weaker uh, modules that are out there. It's It kind of reminds me of, of Horde of the Dragon Queen where it was very much on rails, and I felt like it was weak because it was so on rails. But I guess, you know, it's it was good for, for newbie DMs mm. like myself at the time. But, but yeah. I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you're saying. Where it's it's great for inspiration, right. uh, but but you're definitely going to do a lot of heavy lifting um, right. if you want it to be more fleshed out. And yep. I feel like I feel like Wizards has been working really hard, especially since the Tyranny of Dragon storyline, to to find a, a happy middle ground between right. giving yep. you a linear story and giving you a sandbox. You know, yeah. uh, and this yeah. was one of the ways that they've tried to address that. And and I just don't feel like it was it was all quite there. So. Yeah, it, I, I I agree. I think like 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 Curse of Strahd is still my favorite of their mm-hmm. of their hardbacks. I love Curse of Strahd, and that's another one that I ran for two groups, and I ran the whole book for both groups. And that that you know is much more refined sandbox. Um, right. But I use like that was one where it didn't have like you know seven hundred locations. It had like you know thirty, right. and you could use twenty five of them. <laughs> was, so yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'll shut up. Yep. All right, very good. So, so that's Mike, and he, we didn't get a chance to really ask questions. But you don't. There's not a lot of, of questions to ask when you've just finished the campaign. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and you'll get to hear about your next campaign because I think you're. You said you're moving into Tomb of Annihilation next, that's and correct. Allison yep. will talk yep. about that. Her yeah, I've had, uh, starting I've had a couple of weeks. A couple weeks off, so I'm starting that one up in two weeks, two week or a week from next Sunday. Yeah, and I think Allison will talk about having started up her uh, Tomb of Annihilation a while ago um, on her turn. But before we do that, uh, i got to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They're back. Noble Knight is back uh, in 2018. They are the uh, brick-and-mortar game store that is also a, a great online game store that specializes in finding out-of-print uh, products while also uh, having all the newest things. So in in honor of Mike's Storm King's Thunder campaign, I'm going to go back to the original sort of uh, inspiration, I think, for Storm King's Thunder and recommend Against the Giants from Noble Knight. They have the the 25th anniversary edition collection of the Against the Giants story. So, so this was 25 years after it was first published. This one was published in 1999. It's now well out of print. Um, the original written by Gary Gygax. Sean Reynolds is also uh, listed as an author on this one. Uh, so they've c- collected it, and and you should really check out Noble Knight's new website. They, it's much, uh, it's really easy to navigate and find everything. And instead of looking at like searching for against the giants and seeing three different entries, you search for it, you get one entry, and it shows all the three different condition levels that you can that you can purchase and how much it costs. It's way easier to navigate. Uh, I really recommend people checking it out. Against the giants, for example, on one page, I see that you can get it uh, as low quality as very good for thirty five dollars, or as high a quality as excellent for $40. Um, so not too bad for something that's been out of print for almost 20 can you, years now. Can you sell them stuff? You can. You can sell them the old stuff that you're done with, uh, and then they give you credit, and you can use it to – I think they give credit. They might be There might be an option for giving cash uh, or whatever. But, um, but yes, that's how they get all the out-of-print things that they have. If you've got a bunch of stuff you want to get rid of, go to noblenight.com and uh, hit the little bottom left corner. There's a little banner that says Selling and Trading. You can get rid of your stuff there. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, I normally devour noble knights. But right now, I 
is so awesome, and it's tasty. I get all my gaming products there, new and out of print, and I can sell my products when I'm not using them. Now, I need to go capture some villagers and sit on a pile of treasure. Thanks. Alright, so that's Noble Knight. Allison, you've you've heard Alrighty. Mike you've heard Mike sort of tell you show you how it's done a little bit, although he didn't ask me uh. many questions or, or advice or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, it was a weird one for me. It was because it was at the end of a campaign. But I'm gonna put fifteen minutes on the clock for you and then you're gonna ignore it just like him when it go, when the buzzer goes off. Ready? Okay. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Go. Okay, so I started running uh, Tomb of Annihilation about maybe two months ago uh, for a completely new table out here in Los Angeles. Um, it was my first time running anything for the past, I think, like six or seven months. So I took a, a long break from DMing after my relocation. Um, but yeah, so this was my first time doing anything related to Chult. So I had to do a lot of kind of background research on what Cholt was. I knew it existed. I knew little bits and pieces about it, but this is the first time actually going to Cholt. Um, so yeah, so when I started this, I would say that it's probably the weakest start that I've had as a DM for, for an adventure, um, because it was kind of one of those things where several of my players were new to D&D in general. So the kind of idea they had of it, of most of the things being completely foreign in terms of monsters, turned into like, hey, this adventure actually has dinosaurs, and you as a person know what a dinosaur is. Um, so kind of getting them off the main continent that most people know of in, in Faerun and whatnot was, was a little bit uh, shaky for me. So I'd say that uh, when you're starting to run this campaign, it, it's, it was one of those things where you finding a way to get the characters in i guess the mood was was something that i struggled with that perhaps other people could perfect um but yeah so cholt um they had a lot of fun in in port nine zara which is where you start out at and uh you know my players got really into it in a sense that you know once they arrive they really like the the uh, look and feel of the city in terms of being more of like an island atmosphere uh they ended up doing dinosaur racing which is one of the things that you could do so some of them were were learning how to dinosaur race and others were betting on it um one of the things that you do in port nine zaru is you know you find a, a guide in the city to try and you know get you through the jungles of cholt um, the adventure itself comes with like a, a ginormous fold-out map uh, that has one side where it's like there's it's a it's a hex map and uh, there's the whole center of the island is is completely missing and that's for your players where it's kind of like okay that we know that you know most of the people left the center of the island because you know zombies and zombie dinosaurs uh, exist so everyone's kind of been pushed to the coast so. When you travel, you have to kind of fill in the blanks. What's going on? Where are you going? And how do you get there? And, and what do you find along the way? Um, and then the other side has the DM side where everything's kind of filled in. So that's that's a very nice reference point for you and your players when you're running this. Um, you know, one of the fun things that... that you also get to do is there's a bunch of merchant princes throughout the city uh, where they're, they're men and women that kind of uh, have a monopoly on different things like potions or uh, weapons or uh, poisons or things like that. So there's a lot of like really cool NPCs that add a lot of flavor to the city at the beginning and, you know, using them to kind of segue into different small tasks they can do around the city or, or helping them find different guides. It was a lot of fun for my players. Um, they had a lot of fun getting to know like each merchant prince and, and what they had to potentially offer um 
once they left Port Nianzaru, uh, they kind of just ended up in the jungle and they wanted to figure out what to do. Uh, you know, they decided to travel by canoe, so it was kind of straightforward uh, in the beginning, traveling through Cholt, where they're like, okay, well, we've got a canoe, and there's several of us, uh, so obviously we're going to be traveling by the river as long as we can. Um, so they decided uh, to, to actually find their way to Kirsabal, or at least that's what they started with. Uh, and Kirsabal is essentially like this uh, city on the side of a mountain and it's a bunch of aracocras. It's essentially like a, think of like a monastery, but you know, with, with aracocras instead of humans. Um, so they kind of set out with that as their goal because they stole a map and that's where the map was for. So, you know, that's, that's how they ended up out there. Um, things kind of changed a lot as they went through and I've been using, um, a couple things from the DMs Guild to actually supplement their travel throughout the days. Uh, so one of the main things that I've been using has been, um, uh, what is it called? Let me jungle tracks. Uh, that's that's one of the ones I'm getting to. I'm going to do that after they go to Mesro. So I've been using a different one. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's a it's got a bunch of like little side quests and things that they can do while they're traveling. Like this happens mm. each day uh, to help, you know, make things interesting while they're traveling, you know, especially if they get lost, you know, what, what happens when you get sidetracked, what happens when, you know, you're, um, you know, you're traveling and, and, you know, something interesting could happen throughout the day. Um, oh, I just found it. The uh, Tomb Annihilation Companion. Uh, mm. by PowerScore RPG. That's what I've been using. Um, so it's been really fun and flavorful to to introduce these random occurrences that, that help me as a DM where I don't have to think of every single thing that could happen every day. So, you know, along the way, they've they've picked up some interesting things. Uh, they've got a cursed ring right now that, that attracts, uh, has a 50% chance of attracting, like, dinosaurs. Uh, so they ended up encountering, like, a friendly stegosaurus that's been kind of following them, and they used it as a, a mount for a little bit. Um, they've also encountered, like, um, the Zorbos, like, the evil koalas, essentially, yeah. that they've had a lot of fun with. Um, they befriended a... Uh, a flying monkey as well. So there's a lot of cool little things that you could throw in at the players to help either lead them in a certain direction or, or, you know, create some excitement during travel. So it's, it sounds um, like you're, you're expecting them to spend a lot of time wandering and exploring that central part of Chalt. Yes. Yes. So I, I kind of want to give them uh, the chance to explore Chult and, and make it something that has a lot of personality and background. And it's not just your, your average encounter or encounters like, mm -hmm. you know, on the Sword Coast. It's not just goblins running at you. There's a lot of interesting things. There's, you know, there's new foods or there's there's different um, issues where you have with, you know, purifying water and, and the things that you eat. Um, there's a lot of new creatures that, you know, aren't in the, the normal monster manual that, that perhaps they've never seen or never heard of as people who have casually followed D&D. So I've been trying to kind of focus on that as well as giving them opportunities to, to level up uh, before they get to the to more serious, meatier parts of the adventure, um, as well as trying to kind of drive the point home that, you know, in, in Tomb of Annihilation, there's the whole, uh, you know, death curse where things that have mm -hmm. been uh, resurrected, you know, they they are slowly dying. And, you know, when people die, their, their souls don't go to, quote unquote, heaven, essentially. Uh, they're just kind of stuck in that limbo where they they just cease to exist on Earth and, and that's it. So um, there's been a couple uh, encounters where they've dealt with uh, the dead or dying. 
Um, and it's kind of given them that moral dilemma of, okay, we need to figure out what's going on with this. Um, you know, this person died, okay, they can't come back and we know that. Um, there's one uh, encounter that happened the other day where they accidentally killed someone that was, um, you know, tied out and left to dry. Mm. Um, and they, the person was still alive but was dying. And one of my players decided to uh, thunderwave and uh, that that killed the person like they were trying to save them but they ended up killing them and you know it was kind of one of the somber reminders where like okay well you just killed this poor random person instead of saving him reminder that once they're dead they're not coming back so um you know it's right now i guess one of the questions that i have as a dm is is you know perhaps you guys can help me more uh, with tying in um Aserac because i'm i you know that's one of the yeah. things where it's like it's such a big part of the plot but it's not really talked about too much early on in the adventure. Yeah, and I would, I would, I guess I would argue that Aserak isn't really that big a part of the plot so much as uh, he is the explanation as to why this is going on. He's kind of just, yeah. uh, he's a, he's the Deus Ex Machina that puts it all in motion, uh, and other, and then otherwise just let it goes away for the most part. Although there's some really cool stuff with uh, that could come up with him at the end. I'm curious how you handle the. And I, I've expressed this concern during the review. The you want them to go out and explore Chult and, and have all these interesting encounters and make this the the location and the the uh, unusualness of of that location um, mm-hmm. and, and feel all of that and explore all of that and do all of that. But at the same time, like the Death Curse is a ticking time bomb. You know. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's this weird juxtaposition of I want to go out and explore all the coolness. But if every day I do that, people are dying, you know? Exactly. And that's one of the other things where it's kind of... Uh, the, the players are aware that it's it's a ticking time bomb, but they haven't really... Um, it, it's sunk in, but not, not enough, I guess, is one of the things. Mm. Um, so I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to tie that back in. So so right now, they just finished up at a place uh, called Ataz Muhahaha, <laughs> which is... <laughs> hilarious yes. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's like a, a bridge with a bunch of monkeys and it's where they kind of encounter a, a shrine to Obtao, which is like the main deity of cholt like mm. he created cholt and mm-hmm. uh and uh what i was going to have them happen is is next they plan on going to mesro so um you know they're going to be traveling to mesro and basically you know uh it the city was destroyed during the spell plague um or and was kind it of well, yeah, or what, <laughs> what is the big question mark in terms of uh, what they know in character. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to be going to what is left of Mesro. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, well, what happens now? You know, uh, perhaps they get a message through through sending or something that, that tells them, you know, hey, this is serious. Um, you know, people are... are starting to to rot and decay um you know the the main person who sent them on this quest um she's getting impatient and wants Mm. an update what's going on perhaps uh they encounter other people that are affected by this so i think uh that's kind of the one of the ways that i'm going to tie this into it um well so so, i i I kind of feel from my read through that that once mm -hmm. you get to mesro there's there's a pretty clear line of clues that you can give them because um, yes. Mesro seems much more interesting if you also encounter Arctus Simber there, because he's got storyline yes. tied to Mesro actually, that's interesting. That's part of why they're going to Mesro, because mm. they, they actually uh, happen to meet uh, Arctus Simber while they were traveling throughout the jungle. Um, and he kind of 
he did a trick with the Ring of Winter where he he created something that was animated out of out of ice, out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my players is is a, a storm sorcerer, and he was very amused by that. Um, so they kind of, you know, they, they know who he is and that he exists, um, and that you know things have gone down in Mesro. So that's that's where I plan on kind of seeding in some clues for them. Um, and I also am kind of using ideas from uh, the DM's Guild uh, Ruins of Mesro uh, kind of. I literally, I literally just bought that while you're talking about it. Oh, mm. really? Really? I'm, well, I'm looking perfect. at it right now. <laughs> yeah, so I've been using that for... Uh, one of the things about Mezra is, like, I felt like there wasn't really... There, there's almost no information in the Tomb of Annihilation book about Mezra, but oh. I want it to be a really major part of them kind of, you know, traveling through Chult. So I decided to, to go get Ruins of Mezra from the DM's Guild. Um, thank you so much, Will Doyle. You're... <laughs> my hero for doing all this research on Mesro and, and writing this. Um, but I, I plan on kind of threading in ideas from Ruins of Mesro to to kind of tie in the story of, of perhaps, you know, more of the death curse and how it's affecting different mm-hmm. people and, and you know, make it hit home a little bit more for them. Um, just because I wanted the city to be full of, of places they can explore and see and understand a little bit more. Like there's a big shrine to Ubtau in the center of it. Like, mm-hmm. okay, how does that, you know, how does that play into things? Okay. There's tons of zombies here. How, you know, what does that have to do with what's going on? Um, perhaps they can uncover more of the story of Mesro and how it, you know, came to ruin. And also they know about, uh, artist Simber's, uh, wife, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a, a ton of opportunities to figure out all this backstory about what's happened in the world, more about the spell plague, more about Arctic Simber, um, you know, all sorts of things that, that would be interesting for them and also give them a chance to, to level a little bit before they get thrown into, say, Omu mm-hmm. and go into that kind of meat grinder mode later on there. Um, you know, I've already downed a few of them and they, they haven't, no one's died yet, but at least died died but they they've been downed a few times by uh you know different circumstances so they're kind of learning um as adventurers how far they can push themselves in the beginning of of this adventure in cholt because things are only going to get harder um and i can't wait until (laughs) i can't wait until it gets a little bit harder for them it's going to be a lot Mm -hmm. of fun Um, yes no in in my head the the clear line from Mesro to Omu is through the the Naga encounter uh, because that location seemed really fun and interesting and making the characters go through all the trials to get up to the top of what is it the ziggurat yes. or whatever where the Naga is uh, like from like that's where I in my mind you get to Mesro and from Mesro you get the hint that not where not to Omu, but to there is an entity out there that can answer your questions. It can point you in the direction you need to go. And from there, you go to the Naga and go through that because I want to see my characters or my players do ridiculous things at, at that ziggurat. And then that that sage Naga can then point them towards Omu. And, and then you get sort of all the craziness of the city as well as the craziness of the dungeon. There's all kinds of craziness to deal with once you get to Omu. Like just because you got yeah. to Omu doesn't mean it's time for the the, the killer dungeon yet. Yeah, so they actually picked Iku as their their guide, and she's kind of she's like a she's mm-hmm. a co-tool in disguise, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I plan on using her to to get them to the the Guardian Naga so that they can find out you know more information and yeah. and you know learn how to you know make things happen, and it's also yeah a good way for them to find out more information about you know what are the secrets of whatever that they need to know. Oh, 
That's my 15 minutes, I assume? It is. But, I mean, feel free to finish your thought. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's kind of, uh, you know, where I am right mm-hmm. now. You know, they, they're, they're only a, a couple weeks into this actual adventure. So having new players, they're, they're learning how to explore the world. And I'm also learning a lot about Cholt as I go because everything I've run before this, you know, Horde of the Dragon Queen, Rise of Tiamat, um, playing in Sword King's Thunder, um, you know, hearing about another table's time with Princes of the Apocalypse and running out of the abyss and all this other craziness. You know, I, I've been all over the Sword Coast and back, and I, I'm kind of glad to take a break from that and go somewhere else and go to Cholt and, you know, deal with crazy zombies and dinosaurs and all that randomness. So I'm having fun so far, and, you know, it's just a matter of tying everything together so that it's nice and neat and mm-hmm. it makes sense to my players. There you go. I have a, I have a couple of questions. Yes. As, you know, speaking as one who's about to run this, um, so I am I am sort of paralyzed with fear about Port Nianzaru, um, because it's so big and there's so many things going on and there's like you know the party can pick one of these seventeen guides, um, and you know I, so so uh, Jeff mentioned the uh, death curse and like the the you know the the countdown timer of the death curse and how that can affect things. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm gonna have a problem with that because I don't plan on putting any mechanics to the death curse at mm. all. I'm gonna I'm gonna treat it strictly as a story element, and when it matters, I'll bring it up, and mm-hmm. when it doesn't, I'm, I won't. And the idea of like everybody's being drained of a hit point per day, why are you racing dinosaurs? I'm gonna not worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's kind of how I've I've decided to do the death curse. Is that it's a it's a thing, and it's not so much a hit point per day. It's just. It, yeah. It's a thing. People, people you love <laughs> might be dying. Yeah, <laughs> if, exactly. If, if exactly. Needed, right? It's much easier for me to deal with as a DM as well than trying to remember. Okay, these yeah, people right. lost another hit point per right. day. But what can I? So so what can I do to try to stream? So a should I streamline Port Nianzaru to 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 kind of reduce the dis- potential decision paralysis of the players when they when they get there. Um, or should I leave it wide open? And if I do narrow it down, what what are the things that you've seen that worked really well that I should make sure to to, to focus my attention on? So one of the things I did um, in terms of kind of streamlining Fortnite's Zaru a little bit more is I took there's there's a bunch of side quests listed listed at the beginning of like you know they arrive in Fortnite's Zaru. Okay, mm-hmm. here's a bunch of side quests. I I took the idea of the characters that I had in my party and tried to narrow that down to like two maybe three different things that they could potentially do on top of you know i I had a feeling they'd be interested in dinosaur racing and they were so i kind of like narrowed it down to to these few options that i could focus on and flesh out for them and went from there so what happened was they got into port nianzaru they they were given a map of the city like an overhead view so that it was easier to explain to them and we kind of went from there so you know they spent a ton of time on the dinosaur racing and and uh betting Mm -hmm. and then through that i kind of helped introduce um you know one or two of the guides that would be involved with that and then also um that kind of tied in uh, a few of the merchant princes Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. when they won the 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 dinosaur races they actually ended up getting a good amount of money so as a result they ended up staying in one of the nice hotels in port (laughs) nine so that introduced them to you know the bartenders which introduced them to some of the other merchant princes so i made like table tents that had a photo of the merchant prince and then on the back had some little like short notes for myself Mm -hmm. and as a result i could mention a merchant prince put it on top of my dm screen and they had that person kind of in mind and they got a short summary of you know what what they they could do for them um one of the players happened to have uh you know 
he was like a from a noble background and he had kind of his little helpers with him and they they helped get like the the different handouts for the guides so that kind of uh made that really easy where they they went and found the right person to find out about the guides and they they were able to bring back information on most of them and kind of pick and choose um so it was kind of an easy way to introduce the idea of there's a bunch of different guys that could take you and you know here's some options which ones do you guys want and can you afford that person okay how are you going to afford them you know what are you going to use them for are you going to help are they going to help you get to a certain place or do you just like them because of, I don't know, their name, whatever it may be. So that, that's how I, I made it a little bit easier on myself is, um, you know, narrow some of the things down, narrow some of the, the options down once they get there for the side quests and then kind of give them more information when it came to the merchant princes and the uh, guides so that they could make a choice and I could go from there. I had enough notes on, on everyone that I could just, you know, run with it, whatever Great. they chose. Um, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, so one yeah. other question. When you when they started going off into the jungle, uh, the adventure has pretty rigid, I mean, not rigid as like you have to, but it, it's got a uh, pretty robust rules for how to do travel, the whole hex-based travel system and yeah. potential. Did you use that? And, and if so, how did that work out? Yes, I am actually still using that um, in terms of like the survival roles and you can advance this many hexes per day if you're on foot or this many if you're if you're traveling by canoe. So I am I am sticking pretty closely to that um, in terms of the whole you get lost type thing if you roll below a certain number I'm, I'm following that loosely because sometimes it's like okay they've already been traveling enough days I don't want to spend another day where they're lost where I'm just like okay, you know, I wave my hand and you are lost for a day and then the next day you roll well enough and you find your way back. You know, I only truly use that when I want them to have a, a kind of a side encounter that's happening. Um, so, for example, there was one where they were traveling by canoe and, you know, it's kind of hard to get lost on a river that goes one way, but, you know, they, they, <laughs> they, they got lost and I said, okay, what happened was you ended up in a tributary of this river and you're slightly off course. You thought you were going the right way. Not quite. Um, and that kind of led them to the encounter of the Zorbos as well as Arctosimber where they saw, you know, after the whole, the whole evil koala encounter uh they noticed that there was a lot of frostbite on different plants and that's mm -hmm. kind of how i introduced them to him um so it was it, it had a purpose versus just okay you're lost for a day right. um, that that didn't really seem like fun or interesting so yeah, right. so i used it i used it to introduce um interesting encounters outside of the norm if, if they're going to get lost or something mm -hmm. like that gotcha good stuff Very good. yeah cool all right, so that was awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Allison. Uh, it is now time to take a quick break to mention other ways that you can support the show besides going to Noble Knight. Uh, you can go shop on Amazon or DMs Guild following the links at thetomeshow.com. We get a, a small percentage. You get the exact same experience with Amazon or DMs Guild, uh, and that helps support us. You can also support us directly at Patreon, patreon.com slash thetomeshow. You can be like Keith, Brian, Stephen Robertson, Garing, Garrett, Colin, uh, Christopher Gray, Leonard Peltier, Jeremiah McCoy, Matt Bible, Doug Palmer, and Mark Richman. Uh, these are some great spo uh, sponsors or, or supporters over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show as well as many others. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to us in that way, that is awesome and we would definitely appreciate that. All right. Now, time for me to put 15 minutes on the clock for me. 
And I'm going to have to give, I guess, a little bit extra recap uh, for Allison. I don't know how familiar you are with my campaign from previous episodes of Behind the DM Screen. Uh, uh, Fast version. Uh, Post-apocalyptic fantasy Earth. Um, I'm mashing up several different uh, published adventures. The Rod of Seven Parts plus uh, Princes of the Apocalypse and Out of the Abyss are all happening simultaneously. Holy crap. That's a lot of stuff (laughs) happening at once. (laughs) Yeah, although they've they've already wrapped up... um, um, Princes of the Apocalypse. That storyline has has concluded at this point. Uh, and now they are working their way to um, what we what we call uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, whatever they call it back, you know, in, in the post-apocalyptic fantasy future. Uh, who knows? They haven't yeah. gotten there yet. Uh, I, stole an, <laughs> I stole an idea from uh, a conversation in uh, the Lore You Should Know section of Dragon Talk. Uh, they talked about this uh, this sort of underground gnomish railroad uh, called the Misty Way through the Astral Plane. Uh, and so I stole that idea to get them from their normal location, which is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, to the Arabian Peninsula. That way I can have them, like, travel through the astral plane for sections and then have to get out uh, at certain places and then re-enter in other places and force them into little interesting encounters and side quests. Uh, The most recent forced uh, exit point is in what is modern-day India. And so I um, last time I was asking a lot about, like, how do I pull a bunch of stuff to make it Indian? And the response from both Sam and Mike was, I don't know, I don't know Indian mythology. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's a rough one, wow. Well, but it's a really interesting one. There's a there's a really rich and deep and interesting uh, mythology and history there that that uh, I really wanted to sort of activate, uh, but without having to kill myself creating a whole new thing over it and do a lot ton of research. So um, I went off to um, the the Facebook group, the fifth edition, one of the fifth edition Facebook groups, and I posted there saying, "Hey, this is the situation. I'm an Indian. Uh, I want some like Indian inspiration things. What sh- what kind of encounters or locations or uh, you know whatever should I use to make it feel uh, true to Indian mythology?" And literally nobody responded except for Eric Paquette who's wow. one of the co-hosts for the book club. And so I talk to Eric regularly anyway. Uh, and so I'm like, so between Eric Paquette and, and me spending an hour or two uh, reading through articles on Wikipedia, I managed to pull together you know, a handful of interesting uh, bits of inspiration and, and what have you. And so, uh, and that, and that's really all I needed for a session, right? For for one six hour session, if I've got four or five encounters in my pocket to pull out, or or NPCs or locations or whatever, um, that's really all I I kind of needed. So, they exit the the misty way in in uh, the hills outside of some city that they can see in the distance and what have you. Um, they they work their way towards that city, but on the way there, they run into a um, the these. Uh, little ant creatures, and by little I mean almost human-sized ant creatures. They're clearly like worker drone sorts, and they follow them, and uh, they ended up end up following them into sort of a veiled um, small little town being uh, inhabited by gnomes. So, but but like the architecture is like way out of proportion. Like the, there's giant columns that that go, you know, they're literally giant-sized columns, you know, and, and whatever. Like, uh, But they've got those little gnomish things in there. They find out that the gnomes have been living there for some time, and that was a tie-in to the whole Misty Way thing because it was gnomes that set it up, and these gnomes just sort of got stuck here in this location. Uh, and they're living under the protection of an Empyrean that they have a, a gnomish name for that kind of goes back to when I first started the campaign and... Um, 
the the player has helped me build the world and one of them's like oh well one of the possible npcs we could run into is this thing and it's an empyrean and whatever i'm like okay cool and i put that in my pocket and now finally 11 levels later i i'm like oh i'll pull that out and use it here uh, and so the gnomes have this name for it that that matches up to what the player came up with uh but locally uh this empyrean is known as Trimurti, which is actually an indian um or hindu um figure that is a sort of a a triumvirate, a trinity of gods. It's uh, Vishnu, Shiva, and uh, Brahma, uh, the creator, the protector, and the destroyer, which are three aspects of the same entity, sort of. Uh, Hindu gods are weird that way. Like, it's one big god, but it's also thousands of gods, and they're all different aspects of the divine. And so that's what this Empyrean is. And, and this Empyrean has been protecting these gnomes for for time immemorial and they need protecting because the city nearby is being ruled by a rakshasa uh which they refer to as the flesh eater because rakshasas are known for being man eaters right uh and so eventually they figure out that that the empyrean uh has gone missing and so their their protections are fading their veil is falling they're soon to be discovered and certainly will be captured and enslaved or whatever or possibly eaten because it's a city ruled by a rakshasa so they uh, decide to go into the city to, to confront the, the Rakshasa and try to figure out what happened to the Empyrean. Um, and they go to what they assume is the palace. Uh, it's this big, you know, uh, onion-domed thing with spires around it, minarets around it, and whatever. And they go there. Uh, and I'm describing it in relatively uh, thorough detail um, because I'm bas- because where they've actually ended up going is the Taj Mahal. And I've been there, so I can describe it from my, my firsthand experience. But they also figure out that the Taj Mahal is not, in fact, a palace. Uh, it's a giant tomb. Um, but while they're there, um, they are approached by one of the, the uh, Rakshasa's sort of viziers, uh, or a lieutenant, who happens to be a Merilith, because that's a very Indian sort of creature, right? Many arms, snake body, that's very, uh, very Indian flavor. What, what level are they? 11th. Okay. Uh, and so... The Merilith takes them to the palace and the, the Rakshasa is like, hey, I know you're snooping around. I know you're, you're looking for stuff. What are you doing? You're outsiders. You clearly don't fit in here because um, you know, they clearly wouldn't fit in, right? They, they don't even look like the local people, right? So uh, they kind of tell their story to the Rakshasa and the Rakshasa is like, yeah, so I have your Empyrean. I am in the process of consuming your Empyrean. I'm like, what? You're eating this this godlike creature? What are you What are you talking about? It's like, yeah. So, um, mind flayers started coming up from the the caves nearby, and they're being led by a bunch of undead and this entity called Orcus. And I need the power from de- eating this divine creature to defeat Orcus. So. Uh, Sorry, I have to protect my people. And so now they've got this conundrum of, well, clearly this Rakshasa is not a good person, and he's willing to eat a, a, a deific creature uh, in order to to win this war with Orcus and the, the Mind Flayers. Um, but they end up, long story short, saying, well, rather than fighting the Rakshasa and freeing the Empyrean, we will give the Rakshasa what it needs, right? It's clearly, at least on some level, trying to protect its people, uh, we don't want to deny it that. We'll make the decision to go down to the tunnels and fight Orcus or stop Orcus or otherwise end this war so that the Rakshasa doesn't need the Empyrean anymore and we'll let it go. Uh, and so they they find their way. They agree to do this. They're given access to or they're, they're given um, – they're told of how to get to the Mind Flayer city. Uh, basically – 
the the there's a legendary um, creature in Hindu mythology that's basically a giant white uh, carnivorous worm, and I'm like, oh sweet, so just a recolored purple worm. Uh, so I had that sort of living in and occasionally popping out of the river outside of the palace. And then uh, the way that they got to the the spot where the Mind Flayer city is, is um, th- you had to let this legendary creature eat you and then cut your way out of it at the right time in order to exit at the, the place that you wanted, wanted to be. Meanwhile, you're inside the creature taking damage and what have you. So it's not a pleasant way to travel, but it gets you where you need to go fast. Um, and so that was another way I brought in some Indian mythology. And so I ended the, the, the session with them in the tunnels overlooking this large chasm with the, the Mind Flayer city in it. Um, and then I didn't even really get to the point where I described it because I'm like, oh, I didn't expect you to get this far yet. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where I left it off. And I have to figure out, so how do, how do they defeat or into the threat of a mind flayer city being controlled by Orcus, which is something I stole right out of the out of the Abyss storyline, even though it's not in the published adventure. That's something that happened, like I think, in the video games. Um, was that basically? Um, yeah, that, that that's correct. Yeah, it was. It was. It was the elder brain of the mind flayer city uh, was right. basically killed and then made, raised to to undeath by Orcus. Right. Uh, and so through the through that on death of the elder brain orcus is able to control the entire mind flayer community so i stole that idea tying in these other storylines i have going into to this you know rod of seven parts quest uh, and what have you so now i have to figure out how do i have a party of 11th level characters um end the threat of war from orcus and an <laughs> entire city of mind flayers um in a way that that doesn't just get them killed because i can't imagine that they could take on an entire city full of of both undead and mind flayers uh, being led by Orcus, um, you know, and so there's different ways I've, I've thought of of handling that, but I'm kind of curious what you guys think. And I've given myself a good four and a half minutes to hear your thoughts. So, <laughs> I'll let Allison talk first. Wow, that is, I, I like you <laughs> have to go before me. That is an overwhelming amount of, of the, things that are happening. There's I, a lot like, going on. But really, I just really just need to figure out how to deal with like the mind wow. flayer city and how to describe it in interesting encounters, but also how not to overwhelm well, them and kill them. I'll I'll offer I'll offer some adv- experiences of my own mm-hmm. that I I wish I had done. Um, there is a lot of really great material that Wizards has just put out pretty recently about mind flayers and about what Mind Flayer society is like and about mm-hmm. all of the different monsters that they're involved with. And um, so Volo's Guide in particular mm-hmm. has a whole section about Mind Flayers. Um, and uh, I rem- I've been... Like, I've been forcing myself... I had to admit to Mike Merles that I have not read the Monster Manual and in, in horror. And, and, I, and as my penance, I am reading the Monster Manual all the way through. All <laughs> cover to cover. Text, wow. Cover to cover. And every day, I, you know, rather than go to Reddit, I go to the Monster Manual on D&D Beyond and I read uh, some monsters. And it's amazing how many monsters in there are tied to the Mind Flayers. Hmm. Um, I, 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 it's not troglodytes. It's the other... There's another sort of bestial... You know, and it start. It's it's in the first half of the monster manual because I haven't. I'm only halfway through. Um, you thinking of Grimlocks? 
Grimlocks, yeah, yeah. Grimlocks are are like good servants of Monster Manual of Mind Flayers. So yes. actually, if you go to like the Monster Manual and you you know and the D and D Beyond, you can do a search for Mind Flayers. You can kind of see all of the monsters that have connections to Mind Flayers, and all of them have like little bits of lore hmm. um, that you know have their own kind of cool connection to Mind Flayers. Um, and now one that might be beneficial, not to complicate your, your, your story is over, overly outrageously complicated anyway. Um, <laughs> it's very simple at any given time. There's just a lot of other threads. <laughs> yeah, a lot right. Of, well, there's a lot of threads. Thread. In any, in any given in. session, it's very simple. Yeah. Is that the Githyanki and I think of the Githyanki and I'm not sure about the Githzeri, but mm. the Githyanki freaking hate mind flayers. And by Githyanki, yeah. you mean Githyanki and Githzerai. Yeah, whatever. I had this similar this similar conversation with Matt Cernet on Twitter recently. So, uh, what? And you were telling Matt Cernet how to pronounce it? I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Good. Good luck with that. Let me let me let me let me think about which source I'm going to trust. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, they hate mind flayers. Right. So if there is an opportunity, if there is like a Githy Yankee, if there's a Githy Yankee. Um, uh, you know, hit squad that happens to be there. Yeah. Um, they could get involved in that, right? They could at least get some allies so that it's not just them versus the entire mind flayer yeah, city. That is adding a whole the, extra complication, but yeah, I know. Well, interesting. Tough, tough noogie, man. You're the one that created this. <laughs> so the, the um the other the other part of it is uh that Orcus took over a mind flayer city. Uh, is there a competing elder brain? <laughs> like, are there two? Mm. And one of them is not converted, and one of them is. And there's a there's a stress point, mm -hmm. you know, internal to the city of mind flayers, mm. and and then do you have ally mind flayers who are trying to rid themselves of Orcus, mm -hmm. uh, or 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 try to somehow you know push this back? Um, but yeah, I think I know what I would do is I would get out a nice notebook. And I would read the sections in the Monster Manual and in Volo's Guide that talked about it and jot down ideas mm -hmm. until I had something. Now, for the city itself, I'm going to give a shameless plug. Uh, there is a uh, fantastic location in my book, Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations, um, that is a – I think it's called – I don't even remember the name of it. Um, but it's this uh, – it's been two years. Um, but it's this big underground uh, – it's like the Obsidian Enclave. That's what it's called. And the Obsidian Enclave is an underground city of, like, weird alien stuff, including, like, a big pyramid with an altar to a tentacle god on top and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And you, you could probably steal some ideas from there for, for places that might exist inside this city. Um, there also is a uh, Mind Flayer lair inside Volo's Guide. Mm -hmm. um, nice the problem is, I, I was just looking at that while you were talking and thinking like, oh, this will be perfect. Except you said that they were overlooking and seeing it. Right. And this is all in a bunch of small chambers, so they couldn't see it. But the Obsidian Enclave is open, so there's there's a lot. I use the Obsidian Enclave as my place as Dodime in my Storm King's Thunder campaign. Oh, sure. Because it's a nice big underground city with like lich lich like things in it. Mm -hmm. um, and that worked pretty well. So you could at least start with those as models if you want to save some time. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to come up with your underground place. Um, but I, it sounds like. So I think they're, you know, it, it feels like it could be fun if they run into people that normally they would hate to work with, 
But because this situation is worse, now they have that opportunity. Right. And maybe you have a thread that you've let go previously that might come into play in that regard. Mm -hmm. You know, like who's an who's an enemy they've left hanging that might hate the fact that Orcus has this place as much as your characters do. Mm. Yeah, well, and in fact, uh, one of the things that the the Gith Yankee are known for, I think it's the Gith Yankee, not the Githzerai, uh is allying with Red Dragons. And, yes, um, that's a Gith Yankee. Yeah, yeah one of the things that, that happened in Princes of the Apocalypse, actually, was um, they made a deal with the Red Dragon to help them fight the elemental uh, prince, uh, Imix. So, so basically, the Red Dragon helped them fight Imex, and then as a result, they had to give the elemental weapon to this red dragon, making the red dragon the new leader of the fire cult, and then he the dragon disappeared, you know? So, yeah. so he's out Maybe. there somewhere rebuilding right. the cult. Maybe he's brought in by the Gif Yankee and, right, and right, rebuilding right. the how, cult. How great would it be if they, like, run into a freaking enclave of Gif Yankee <laughs> assassins? And then there the dragon is. He's like, I like hey, guys. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. <laughs> that'd, be a fun, that'd be a fun, you know. And yeah, but, and it's not like you need to have, like, here's your party of 17 people. It's like the Gith Yankee could cause a problem for the Mind Flayers in some other part of the city that lets your characters do whatever it is they're going to do just well, to sort of spread the, you know, spread also, the pain. It also occurred to me, as much as, you know, most parties, I imagine, in, in my own uh, that I know of, uh, are inclined towards, like, let's go in and start killing things until we fix the problem. Um, like, you don't actually have to kill everything to fix the problem. Uh, it occurs to me, like, if you just, like, snuck into the city and cast Ray's Dead on the Elder Brain, that would release it from the shackles of Orcus, and suddenly the entire Mind Flayer enclave turns against him, and it's undead versus Illithids, and you could just walk out and let them tear each other apart. Right. Yeah, and, and I think... I think, you know, this is that opportunity. I don't know if you run into this much. If you do, you, you know, if you do have a group that's like, well, we expect that we're going to be able to take on anything that we face. Right. You know, you can make it explicitly clear that in this case, that is not the case. Yeah, <laughs> right? well, like, and, they, and they've... You know, you take a wrong turn. You will be facing against Orcus and 12 Mind Flayers. Yeah, no, I, well, remember, this is the group that went up against Pazuzu, and I found uh, nice, hard stats for Pazuzu, and I'm like, yeah, but it's it's one creature versus the party. Like, this is going to be a tough fight, but I bet they can win. I bet... The, the math is flat enough in 5th edition and from what right. I've heard about from your campaigns, right? That that they can, I bet they'll be able to take on Pazuzu. It'll be fine. And then they went into it. It's like, yeah, we're not fighting Pazuzu. How about we just give him what he wants and let him right. run, let him run away and get and, free? And Orcus can be silly. So I had a, rel they were relatively low level in my campaign when they fought Orcus and mm -hmm. they beat him. Yeah. And, and part of that was they had like two drow houses that were fighting alongside them. Ah. Uh -huh. And Orcus was just randomly, uh, um, randomly power word killing people. And the nice thing was there was like 17 people. Mm. And but, you know, the party could have been members. In fact, one guy had him. He got killed twice and his familiar got killed once. Like he lost every guy he had <laughs> because because of poor roles. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there is that opportunity. That it's like, you know, if e e even a creature as powerful as Orcus, if his if his attention is spread across a lot of stuff like like you said if they manage to resurrect it can be a bit of tomb of annihilation like right like at the end of tomb annihilation a sarak shows up on the spoilers um <laughs> you know a sarak shows up spoiler warning <laughs> yeah i know right yeah a sarak shows up and there is no expectation that you're going to survive right so mm -hmm. it can be that same sort of thing that like if the goal is resurrect the the brain 
which is also kind of interestingly horrific, right? Like, why would you bring a mind flayer brain back to life? Right. Like, it's, you know, you want to kill it. You don't want it to be around. But, you know, sometimes you got to pick the least worst option. And uh, the idea that the goal is to resurrect the brain and then get the hell out. But now Orcus is aware of this and is after you, mm-hmm. you know, like that could be fun. Well, and Orcus plays a major part at the end of Out of the Abyss that it kind of felt bad to me that he doesn't play a role at all leading up to that. Um, my, group, my group beat him. Like, his AC is relatively low, and his hit points right. aren't, aren't tremendous, and they pile on him, and they beat him. Yeah, you know? well, and, and maybe they and could. It wasn't, but... it wasn't like a, it, to me, it wasn't a stolen victory either, because it's like, well, it is his mortal self. Like, it's the primordial... It's the prime... It's the prime material version right although so, again this is the party that that bargained with and and yeah. conceded to pazuzu who is not known for being nearly as powerful as yeah, Orcus is, so. they can offer Orcus. yeah so very good allison you have any any thoughts or suggestions yes, before we close things I do, up actually i was i was kind of brewing on ideas while you guys were talking so a couple ideas that i thought of um you know after after thinking a little bit longer about you know when i ran out of the abyss and and what things you can tie in to to perhaps help your players uh do something about this um so one idea i had was uh one of one of orcus's kind of bigger opponents is grazd uh, the the dark prince, the mm-hmm. demon lord, uh, yeah. you know the the one that's a little bit more about uh, you know the uh, the flesh, I guess you could say. Um, he he would be something good that you could bring up into this, and and perhaps you know they can find a way to pit them against each other, mm-hmm. um, Grazd and Orcus. Um, another idea that you could potentially throw into this again, bringing in out of the abyss is. Um, uh, you know, the giant growth region of, of fungus is uh, Aramycos, you know, the, that is kind of the, the, the largest single organism in the Underdark. Uh-huh. Um, and, and perhaps you can tie that in there where, where you could even bring in Zugtmoy, um, because in Out of the Abyss, Zugtmoy was, was essentially trying to marry Aramycos so that she could control. And, and uh, they've, they've, the they've, met, they've met Zugtmoy, uh, and one of them went crazy for a long time because of it. Oh, perfect. So perhaps you can tie her back in and, mm. and as a result, bring in Aramycos and, and, you know, the whole, a big part of Out of the Abyss, at least for my players, was trying to save Aramycos and trying to keep, you know, everything in the Underdark from dying because it's it's essential, you know, everything kind of grows from Aramycos, uh, you know, existing. So you can perhaps bring in allies through that, you know, either either you're kind of having them ally with a demon lord and, and his allies, or you're having them try and, and, and raise up allies to keep Aramycos safe and to get rid of this whole, you know, nest of craziness where you've got all this mind flayer city and you've also got Orcus. Um, so there's perhaps a couple ideas where, where, you know, perhaps additional conflict or, or some extra help will, will help kind of expand the storyline mm-hmm. here and, and, and give them something to go off of. Yep. Very good. Do you, Excellent. Do you, do you have the Orcus mini? I, I do not have the Orcus mini. I, I'm holding it right now. It is one of my, and I think it might be my favorite miniature of it, all time. It and was one of those, when, that I, it was one of those that I looked at. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And I kind of yeah. want to buy it, but it's a, yeah. it's a heavy price tag for something yeah. I'm probably only going to use once. And now I've yeah. yeah, like yeah. two or three chances to use it, but still. I know, <laughs> right. Like I've, I've used them, you know, you find opportunities to use it when sure. you have it. And I've used it a bunch and I just love it. 
Yeah, very good. It scares the health players. All right. Well, I've got lots of ideas to, to play off of and, and lots of extra reading to do. Uh, I've got a snow day tomorrow, so maybe that's what I'll spend. And, Ooh, and nice. my, sem- my semester at NC State hasn't started yet. My grad school semester hasn't started yet, so I have some, some free time. I might do some reading tomorrow and, and go through all of that stuff. So uh, I appreciate all awesome. that, guys. Thanks. Uh, and yeah. I think uh, we went from <laughs> um, um, our normal, like, we've only got three people in 15 minutes each. We're not going to fill an hour. <laughs> we've gone an hour and 15 minutes now. So, this is uh, the norm, man. This, we, can, this is, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually, usually we can wrap it about an hour, but, uh, you know, we got... Good, good conversations. Good conversations yeah. going on. When so you have a bunch of DMs talking, I mean, it's really, really <laughs> hard time. to keep it to 15 minutes. Absolutely. Like, it's it's rough. <laughs> Absolutely. So so to all of you out there, if you if you want us to, uh, you know, cap our conversation and, and talk a little bit about your thoughts and ideas and problems, if you've got questions or you want some advice, feel free to email thetomeshow at gmail.com or tweet at thetomeshow, uh, and I will collate all that and, and share them next month when we record our next episode. Uh, Until then, uh, say goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys. Bye.